So we're looking in the uh, in the Psalms this um, this fall and into Advent. So we'll end at Thanksgiving, and then we're going to start um, Matthew. We're going to start Matthew in the in Advent and then continue through Easter. But uh, right now we're still in the Psalms, and this Psalm for this week, most scholars there's actually a debate among scholars. A lot of them think it's a harvest Psalm, so they, they like to put these songs in genres. And one genre they place it in is called a harvest Psalm. And you see that in verse 6 where it says, The earth has yielded its increase. That's the only one in the past tense. And so a lot of scholars think that the psalmist wrote this after the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is mid-October, right about this time, a little bit earlier. And so the autumn crops have come in. And you have all the grapes, abundant grapes. You have flowering olive trees. And you have white fields of wheat. And so the, uh, the psalmist sees this stuff coming in and the, the fine wine and the pita bread, uh, the olive oil, and they're saying, they're blessing God and saying, the earth has yielded its increase. They're celebrating God's blessings on Israel. Um, God, our God, shall bless us. And so that's one genre. It's a song of um, thanksgiving, a harvest song. But there's another way of looking at the psalm, which is, more interesting, and that's kind of what I'm going to focus on here, that this is a psalm of prayer for the nations. That it is a prayer of blessing on all the nations. So that as the psalmist thinks about God's blessings on Israel, and the harvest, and the, and the increase of uh, the wine, and, the, and the, uh, the olive oil, and the bread, immediately the thoughts of the psalmist goes to the harvest of the nations. And so it's a different kind of harvest psalm. It's a, it's a missionary psalm. And a lot of people think that Israel was not a missionary nation, that Israel existed for the sake of Israel. But obviously that this psalm proves that that is not true. That clearly in Israel, and this is not the only place at all, but certainly because of this psalm alone, you can say that Israel does not, they knew that they did not exist for themselves. That Israel knew that they existed for the sake of the nations. And so he goes from talking about Israel's blessings to let all the peoples praise you, O God. Verse 3. And these would have been the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. All these people that were around them. Let the peoples praise you. Israel was not against them. They were primarily for them. And then the psalmist goes on to say, let all the people praise you. And I think there the psalmist means people I've never even seen or imagined before. People like Russians and Mexicans and Chinese and Koreans and Syrians. These people, all the people group of the nations. Let all the tribes and languages and tongues give you praise, O Lord. And so in a time when every nation was looking inside, um, and a lot of people think that Israel was was very tribal and parochial and self-protective, but... Clearly not. At, at this time when nations were very interested in themselves and empire building, uh, this psalmist says, let the nations be glad. That's the heartbeat of the psalm, is that they want these nations to simply be very, very happy by singing and rejoicing in God. And so the image is that you have this mighty waterfall of blessings that are pouring into Israel, and it's hitting the surface of the water and kicking up spray, and, and there are these rippling concentric circles going out. First to, you know, Assyria, Egypt, Turkey, and Ethiopia, right around Israel. But then past that to India and the Sudan and Turkey and France as the ripples spread. And we know that this is how the blessings to Israel spread. As Paul and the other apostles 
Thomas to India, and then finally Japan, Brazil, even to us today. We would have been the farthest edge of that ripple here in North Carolina. And so that's what the psalmist pictures, the blessings of God on Israel falling down and creating ripples spreading the nations. So Israel knew that they were blessed, and they owned that, and they loved that. They weren't ashamed of that, but then they knew that they were blessed in order to bless the nations around them. Just as we are all blessed um, simply by being here, and then we're supposed to share those blessings with people around us. So I want to look at the blessings on Israel, and then the blessings to the nations, because that's what the psalm is about. So first of all, the blessings on Israel. And um, as I said at the baptism, um, the, the core identity of Israel is that they were the blessed nation. In all the earth. And this is one reason that scholars think that um, the Israelites were kind of selfish. A lot of Old Testament scholars will say they were very into themselves. They talked a lot about themselves and their greatness. And they did because they knew that they were specifically and uniquely blessed by God. And so if Abraham had had a customized license plate, it would have said blessed on his Lexus. It would have said blessed, hashtag blessed. Um, and Israel knew that they didn't earn these they didn't deserve these blessings. They were very aware of that most of the time, except within their bad moments. But most of the time they knew that Genesis 12, 1 through 3 said that the Lord came to Abram, a godless, pagan, senseless idolater. Had, he had no interest in God at all. Just one of the million people in the world who had no interest in God. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will bless you there. And that is kind of the, the heartbeat, uh, that's the constitution of Israel, is that I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessed nation. And in Deuteronomy 28, Moses fills this out hundreds of years later. This is verses uh, like 1 through 13, I'm not going to read all of them, but if you read Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 13, you just see all the blessings of God. God says, uh, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl, in other words, food. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, your, the heavens, and give you rain to your land. Blessed will be your womb and your animals. And so just abundant physical blessings. Uh, and the, 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 the actual land of Israel was a very blessed place. It's a gorgeous place in the middle of desert lands. It's this gorgeous little strip of land. And, and so Psalm 67 is tapping into Genesis 12 and Deuteronomy 28. And the psalmist knows about those verses very, very well. And so the the psalmist is saying, God, our God, shall bless us, verse 7. And when he says our God, he reminds the readers and the singers and the chanters that this is the God of Abraham, our God. The God who gives us undeserved, completely gracious blessings. So he's not saying God, our God might bless us or will probably bless us. If we're lucky, he'll bless us. It's that he will definitely, 100%, bless us, that we are a blessed nation. And so this confident prayer in verse 1 says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And the only reason that the psalmist can be so confident is because of the promises to Abraham. And he knew that he was a child of Abraham. And if you notice verse 1, that is from the Baroka. We sang the Baroka. Baroka just means uh, the blessing. And there was this thing that that God gave to the priests, the sons of Aaron. It's called the Aaronic Blessing. And when Israel would gather together, the priests would say, The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. 
And that's what verse 1 is referring to. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. And the priest would say this to the congregation of Israel with open hands. Basically saying, you know, I'm not carrying any weapons. I'm not, a, I'm not against you. Of course, speaking for God here, um, I'm not pointing my fist at you. I'm not, uh, I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm not berating you. I'm, I'm not attacking you. I'm not feeling violent towards you. And uh, the point is, uh, I am for you. And I bless you. And I think God knew that the default setting of the human mind is to think that God is against us. And so the, the blessing is to say, no, my face is shining on you. I'm not disappointed with you. Uh, I'm not angry with you. I'm not disgusted or frowning at you. The opposite of that, um, I love you. May God make his face shine upon us in verse 1. We are a nation of blessedness, he's saying. Now, without the Baroka, they would never have had that confidence. But with the Baroka, the Israelites knew that they were a blessed people. It might have taken them a long time to really believe that. In the, in the wandering wilderness where they were leaving Egypt, they really didn't believe that. But it took them time to come to actually accept, yes, God is for us. He's not against us. And uh, I think about the smiling face of God. I think about when uh, you're really angry with someone and, and you think they're angry with you and uh, you don't really want to see them because there's hostility between you and them, or at least in your mind there is. And so uh, you're walking around uh, the city hoping not to see them. And then you're in a grocery store or something like that in Trader Joe's and they're down the aisle. There they are, the person that you do not want to see. And so you try to avoid eye contact and, and like scoot away, uh, slither away. And, and they, that's how we think about that's how we think about God, I think, a lot of times. That uh, if we were to see God like that, if he were to catch a glimpse of us, if he, was, if he was right here, that I would want to get away from him. Because I've offended him, and I know I've offended him, and so I, I feel like he's angry with me. And, and a lot of people say to me, I don't want to come to church because I feel very ashamed of being there. I don't feel like I've been a good person lately. I feel like if I were there, I'd be judged. And so a lot of times, um, the world's perception of the church and of God is that God is kind of out to get us. As if, you know, you're a lawbreaker and you go too fast, you speed all the time, and you don't want to see a policeman. That's kind of the way people think about God, is that God is ready to, um, to come and get us. And then when his face looks upon you, it is not a face that is a smile. But what if that person in Trader Joe's, you know, shouted out my name, Ben Milner, and, and, his, and the person's face was, was smiling, and they, they embraced me, and they hugged me. That... That's actually happened, I'm sure it's happened to you before too, where you didn't want to see that person and there they were. And their reaction to you was to love you and to bless you. And that's what God had to give to Israel so that they would know that God's face shines upon them. That's why we say that to our children. That's why we said that to these two children. Uh, You know, hopefully Clover and Oakley will know that the face of God shines upon them. They'll be trained in the ways of the Baroka. And that's what Israel was receiving from God, this great blessing. And so if you see a frowning face tomorrow, um, if you have someone actually look at you like that, you know, in Trader Joe's, or if you get an email from your boss that is very harsh and condemning, or you read it that way, or if you get um, just a child insulting you, or a parent who says something really negative about you, uh, passive-aggressive and negative from your childhood, or a friend uh, sends you a really cold text... Or maybe someone that you're in love with doesn't send you any texts. If you feel like there's a frown over your life, then you should just know that the shining face of God is higher than that. It, 
like a great big harvest moon is lifted up over you. May God make his face shine upon you and may his countenance be lifted up over you. That's what the, the Baroque goes on to say. May, may his countenance be lifted up upon you. And of course, he knows you and all of your sin better than anyone else. And so whatever anyone else has to say about you that's negative, whatever is true in what they say about you, God would say that and more, and yet he would still say, my face is shining upon you. I love you and I bless you. And if you have faith in Christ, then you are a child of Abraham. That's the, the, the promises of Abraham flow through the Messiah into all who call on the Messiah, whether Jew or Gentile. And this blessedness of Abraham, uh, he, kind of, you know, he kind of held in his back pocket like it, it was his ultimate heirloom, this priceless heirloom he carried around with himself. And we need to have that same feeling as, as people who are believers in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you should own that and you should uh, claim that and not be afraid of that. We live uh, in a culture where it almost seems like it's virtuous not to be blessed. I guess you have different feelings about this, but certainly among some Christians um, and circles I run in, there's this feeling that if, if you're blessed, it's not virtuous, that if you claim to be blessed, it's not being humble, that uh, being blessed is something to be ashamed of. It's kind of like the word privilege that is being used so much today. And uh, we talk about white privilege and male privilege and bourgeois privilege and American privilege and all these things. And people act like if you call me, uh, you know, you're, you have white privilege. And I'm like, oh, don't, you know, that's an insult. How dare you say I have privilege? That's the way that a lot of people treat the word privilege. But if you're in, if you're in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you're ridiculously privileged. Like white privilege or male, male privilege or whatever it is, that is not even close to the privilege that you have simply by being in Christ. There's this blessing. And we can't um, act like that's not true or deny that or hang our heads and act like it's not true that his grace is ours. His face is shining upon us. His blessings are ours. His ways are ours. His saving power is ours. And we do not need to be ashamed of that. We need to own that. It's okay to be blessed. I mean, privileged and blessed are not that different from each other. And so uh, we have this blessing. We need to own that. But we also need to share that. And that's the important second point. Is uh, yes, you're blessed. Yes, the face of God smiles upon you. And you need to own that and say that confidently and proudly. But then you've got to share that. And that's where it often goes wrong. We just kind of stay on point one, the blessing of Israel. And we never move to point two, which is that because of that, we are required by God, uh, we are exhorted by God to share that blessing. And even in sharing it, um, it's, it's a blessed thing. At Redeemer, where I was a pastor and was trained in ministry, they had a saying that they used all the time, you are blessed to be a blessing. And it comes right from Genesis 12. God said to Abraham, uh, you are blessed, and now I want you to bless the nations. That was, again, that's the whole constitution of Israel. Blessed to be a blessing. Because God's blessings are way, way too much for one person to contain. God is like an out-of-control bartender who uh, just cannot stop pouring the drinks. And I was a, I was a bartender in Scotland once, and... Um, 
The owner, uh, Peter Danes, would always come up to me because he knew that I didn't know anything about beer. And I would uh, keep pouring the beer and it would, like, the Guinness would go over uh, the top of the thing. And he said, no, you've got to stop about halfway and let that head develop at the very top. And it cannot go over at all or else we're going to lose a lot of profit. So I was taught to be very, very conservative about how high the blessings would go in anyone's cup. And they would often say, could you just tap it off a little bit? And um, God is not like that at all. He's like... Let the blessings flow. And uh, all the drinks are on me. Let the nations be glad. He says to Israel, I have given you so much. I have given you so many great things that you need to just let those blessings flow. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Look at the logic of verse 1. It's right there in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Why? So that your way may be known on earth. See, that's the whole thing. The whole reason, Psalm 67 says, the whole reason that we're blessed is so that we would bless the nations. And so in the end, this, this whole psalm is very international. It's very globalist, very cosmopolitan. It's not about Israel primarily. It's also about the nations. And I, I found it interesting in watching The Black Panther. That movie has this very dilemma at the very heart of it. If you've seen The Black Panther... I'm not going to give it away, but the, uh, the African nation of Wakanda, which is really near Uganda, supposedly, um, it's fictitious, but Wakanda has been incredibly blessed, graciously blessed, because this miraculous, precious metal has just fallen down from the sky, literally, vibranium. And this nation has used that precious metal to create a glorious utopia, the pearl of Africa. You have art and science and education and wealth, beyond anyone's wildest dreams and incredible natural scenery all together uh, in this beautiful minimalist way. So they just picture Wakanda as this amazing place to live. Way beyond America, the blessings beyond any nation ever, the greatest civilization ever. And the central dilemma of the movie is, are they going to share their blessing? Are they going to share the vibranium? And I will not tell you what they do, but I'll tell you what Israel did. They hoarded it. They hoarded their blessing. Which shows that the tendency of the human heart is to always hoard and to keep it in. And it's kind of like the story of manna in the wilderness, if you know that story from the Old Testament. As soon as God delivers Israel out of Egypt and is taking them to the promised land of blessing, they have to go through the desert. And there's a million people going through the desert. So what does God do to feed them? He sends down this uh, miraculous bread from heaven called manna. Uh, We don't know exactly what it is. Scholars have different views about what it is. It could be a natural thing, a naturally occurring thing. It could be a miraculous thing. But either way, God clearly gave it to them. He gave it to them. And the actual giving was a miracle, no matter how it develops. But anyway, God gave this blessing of manna when they couldn't find anything to eat. And every morning the manna would appear on the ground. And um, God said, you cannot take more than one day's worth. And if you take more than one day's worth, it's going to mildew and rot. And so you have to rely on me every single day. And what did they do? They, they immediately went and they took more than they needed and they stored it and they hoarded it and they tried to sell it probably to each other. And it mildewed and it rotted. And my point is that if you try to hold on to the blessings of God just yourself or maybe you and your family, it's going to rot and mildew. It's got to be spread. Uh, NYU has this uh, New York Child Study Center. I heard about this from a preacher. 
And between 1987 and 2007, they tracked these children who lived in really good homes in Manhattan and Brooklyn around the city. And uh, this is how they described the homes. Complete financial security, freedom to learn and explore, provision for a wide range of interesting opportunities for the children, entertainment, recreation, education. But over those 20 years as they tracked those children, they noticed something that uh, there was a lot of apathy and laziness and an inability to commit to goals. There were attitudes of entitlement, indecisiveness, moodiness, irritability without provocation, low self-confidence and insecurity. This was across a lot of children, so it's not just these happen to have bad parents. And the point of the study was, um, if you don't have children taking risk or or going out and sharing these kind of things, then that's going to happen. And uh, if you live for your own blessings with no service, there's no outreach, there's no mission, there's no hospitality, then um, according to this study, and this is a secular study, uh, it will rot. The blessings will rot. And so the question I have for myself upon reading that study, which is kind of terrifying, is that do we as a family just live for our blessings? Do we just live to have a nice house and a good income and good schools and good playmates and nice entertainment and interesting educational opportunities and travel experiences? You know, so often that's what people say they want to give their kids. But um, are we doing that and living for our blessings or are we sharing those blessings? And so much about the child will be determined by what the family does. You know, whether they open their home to people, show hospitality, go to things like cities with dwellings, you know, other opportunities to volunteer, and just reach out. And Israel's very DNA was inherently missional. Now, they didn't listen to God a lot of times, but if they had, again, the centerpiece of the whole psalm is let the nations be glad. And that's what their children would have been catechized with, is that idea, let the nations sing for joy. And that central thing, that verse, is festooned on either side with let the people's praise, which is the great chorus of the psalm. And so um, we as the church have the same mission as Israel. The church is just Israel 2.0. And if anybody is anti-Semitic or has negative feelings toward Jewish people, just know that the church is nothing but Israel grown to a much greater size. And so everything about Israel was true of us today. And so our job is to also spread this joyful reverence of God, which the psalmist calls fear, across the globe. That the whole thing ends with, that the ends of the earth fear him. And, you know, I'm afraid one thing as a church, we do a lot of things right, but we don't talk enough about cross-cultural missions. And I think that that's partly because um, missions has gone out of fashion in a lot of younger churches today. Even younger evangelical churches, you don't hear enough about missions. And I think one reason that that you don't hear a lot is because the thought in someone's head would be that it's kind of like colonialism or imperialism, and that that foreign missions is um, almost like a spiritual or cultural version of invasion and taking over. Like if you've read the Poisonwood Bible um, by Barbara Kingsolver, that's kind of the main point of the book is that this missionary's family is just importing Western culture into this African nation, the Congo. And a lot of people think that missions is like that, but that is not at all from this passage what missions is about. It's simply about letting the nations be glad and sing for joy 
and fear God. Um, that, that's, that's what this is all about. Not about changing someone to be made in your image or your culture's image. It's, it's expressing all the beauties of those different cultures by introducing them to God, to Jesus. John Piper says this um, in a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. There is something about God that is universally praiseworthy, profoundly beautiful, and deeply satisfying. So much that God will find passionate admirers in every diverse people group in the world. His true greatness will be manifest in the breadth of the diversity of those who perceive and cherish his beauty. His excellence will be shown to be much higher and deeper than the parochial preferences that make us Westerners happy most of the time. Therefore, the diversity of the source of admiration will testify to his incomparable glory. In other words, we have to have people from every single people group and tribe and nation and custom to express the greatness of God that, that white people like me can't, we don't have enough to do that. We don't know enough to do that. You've got to have all different types of people to express the true glory of God. And therefore, every single nation must be reached. And um, God's glory must be spread in every single nation. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Let the nations be glad. Let the ends of the earth fear him. A lot of times, uh, I think we get really upset about the idea of hell and the people we know that we love that might be going to hell. And I think it's very appropriate to have that fear and that concern. But really the thing that should be pressing for anyone about missions or evangelism, it's not so much just the fear of hell, but it's that it's that someone you know is not fully worshiping God. I mean, that's, that's, that is the real thing that you should have your eye on if you're a believer and you know someone that doesn't uh, sing for joy and is not glad and doesn't have the fear of God. What, what is really pressing is that we all, we all know people who don't worship God, who are deprived of the glory of singing his praise, and that's what we should have our eye on. And that's what the outreach is for. That's what Israel was for. That's what the church is for to bless those outside of us. The whole purpose of Israel um, was to be a blessing to other nations and make them glad. Even nations that were the, the enemy of Israel. And this is where that first phrase becomes very poignant and profound. Um, May the Lord be gracious to us. May the Lord be gracious to us. Because Israel knew that more than anything, they were a nation of grace. Because even nations like Egypt that had enslaved them, Israel was called to bless Egypt. And Isaiah was the prophet who probably got this better than any other prophet. And I think that he must have um, either been taking notes on Psalm 67 or Psalm 67 was taking notes on Isaiah. But listen to what Isaiah says about Egypt in Isaiah 19, 19. In that day, in this coming day of glory, international glory... There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Again, that's, that's their former oppressor and slave driver. God will send Egypt a savior and a defender and will deliver them. That's the same language that God uses about the Egyptians and Israel. That he would deliver Israel from Egypt. But now God is saying, I'm going to have a savior and a defender and deliver in Israel. And Isaiah ends with, the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. In other words, he's tell- Isaiah is telling his people, you've got to share your blessings even with the people that you despise the most. 
And the people you have reason to be upset with because they, they persecuted you and they maligned you. And it's not just the Egyptians. He goes on to say, even the Assyrians. And this is even, this is even closer to home because in Isaiah's day, the Assyrian army was like surrounding Jerusalem. They had, they had besieged Jerusalem and they were about to kill every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem if they didn't surrender. And so Assyria was the biggest problem in Isaiah's day. And yet Isaiah says to Israel, and the Assyrians will worship with the Egyptians in that day. And the Lord of hosts will say, blessed be Egypt, my people, and blessed be Assyria, the work of my hands, and blessed be Israel, my inheritance. That's an incredible moment of grace in the life of Israel which some people think was a legalistic country. They think that Judaism is a legalistic, moralistic religion. It's a religion of grace. Imagine a presidential candidate in 2020 who says that their international policy is that they would promise that if elected, that they would bless North Korea, China, Russia, and Syria. Um, You know, they would probably get like 10% of the vote, no matter what else their policies were. Even among Democrats, they probably would not get a huge percentage of votes. And among Republicans, it would probably be even less than that. And I'm not really insulting either party there. You can do with that as you will. But um, the point is that uh, God's ways are not our ways. And God's salvation is not our salvation. And that's why it says in verse 2, we've got to talk about the grace and the blessings of God because... He says, the reason that we're so blessed is so that your mysterious saving ways may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. In other words, uh, the psalmist is saying, we have this crazy God who blesses people who are sinful. We have this absolutely unbelievable, unthinkable God that loves his enemies, who loves the nations that that persecute his enemies. Isaiah says in 64, 1 through 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God like you who acts for those who wait on him passively. God acts on behalf of those who wait on him, who do nothing but just sit there and wait. The gods of the nations wanted their worshipers to be serving them. The gods of the nations wanted to be waited on by their worshipers. And so uh, the gods of the nations were waiting for humans to act and to appease them. And we had to sacrifice bulls and we had to do all this stuff to appease the gods. The gods of the nations were those that we acted and they waited. But this God of Israel, which is the God that we know in Jesus Christ, is a God who acts for those who wait on him. And our God does not demand a sacrifice from us. Rather, he makes the sacrifice for us. And that's the the God that the psalmist is is commending to us. Uh, The God who is gracious and the God who...